Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, we left off in verse 24 of chapter 17, so you can turn there, chapter 17, verse 24. A few weeks back, we took notice of the fact that Jesus, he had taken his disciples just about 30 miles or so, and he went up into the extreme northern Galilee region. He went up to that area that is called Caesarea Philippi, and it was there that he posed that question to them. The most important question that anybody really could be asked is, who do you say that I am, Jesus said? Who do you say that I am? And you may recall it was at that point that Jesus had entered, had reached, if it were, the apex of his earthly ministry. He had come, and everything that he had done, every miracle that he had done, and the healings that he had done, and the teachings that he had done, all of them were designed to point to this question so that they could publicly state there amongst themselves that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He brought them there to this reason, and from that point on, he says, all right, good, I've accomplished what I needed to accomplish. Now I'm going to go do what I came to do. And what he came to do was to go to a cross. Everything from this moment on really pointed to that. He still healed people. He still taught lessons and things like that. But now, as the Scripture says, his face was fixed like a rock, like a stone, to go toward Jerusalem. And we see examples of this, that his primary focus was that, to go to the cross. Chapter 16, 21, you may recall it said, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, and so on. Chapter 17, 22 and 23, last week we, said, we saw it said, as they were gathering in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will take him, arrest him, and crucify him. And they were greatly distressed. We're going to see a little bit later, chapter 20, verse 18. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is what he said to them. So from this point on, that point on that we looked at a few weeks ago, he sets his face, as it were, to go to Jerusalem. We are approaching the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you flip over in your Bibles, turn over to chapter 21. I don't know how many pages in your Bible, one, maybe two. Many of our Bibles, we have headings to each section. Notice what the heading for many of them are going to be in chapter 21. It should say something like the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry, we call that Palm Sunday, last week of Jesus' life. That's how close we are now to the end of things, if you will, in the Gospels. Even though we're only in chapter 18 and the book goes to chapter 28, we're approaching the last week of Jesus' life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there is increasing opposition that is coming against Jesus. And we've been seeing this again and again with the religious leaders. Today, we're going to see more opposition against him. And this time it comes in the form of the tax collectors. Now, we're not talking about, in our day, the tax collector is sort of like a representative of the political system. In that day, the tax collectors, specifically this tax collector or these tax collectors, they were representatives of the religious system. And they are coming once again in opposition to Christ. And so let's read the story. It's uh, found in verses 24 to 27. It says, Now when they, that's the disciples, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, and that means like, yes, he does pay the tax, not yes, he does not pay the tax. Yes, he does. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? 
And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So the passage begins by saying they returned to Capernaum. We've looked at Capernaum, northern shores of Galilee. It was Jesus' adopted home. And Peter has a home there as well. He lives with his mother-in-law and his wife, I assume, as well. And so they go back to Capernaum there. And Peter is approached. Now you want to read by that pressured put a little pressure on him by the tax collector. He's approached by these tax collectors who ask the question, does your teacher pay the two drachma tax? Some of your versions probably say the temple tax. Now, I've seen various price equivalencies to what this tax is. Because if it's a nickel here, take your nickel and leave me alone. If it's you know, $10,000, let's talk about this, whether it's a good idea to pay the tax. So there are price equivalencies that are out there for what a drachma was in that day. And the, the best estimate that I've seen, the most consistent, was that it was three quarters of a day's wage. So two drachmas would be times three quarters or whatever <laughs> it, it may be. So I don't know what you make in a day. Let's say you make 100 bucks or so in a day. So three quarters of that times two, you're talking about 150 bucks. Now, for some of us here, here's 150 bucks, no big deal. For many of us here, we're going to think about paying that tax. That's a lot of money, and we'll probably be saying things about the tax collectors on the way in to, cash, to write that check. It's a sizable amount of money to a lot of people. The tax, the two drachma tax, it was a tax which was used to support the expenses of running the temple. That's why a lot of our versions just call it the temple tax. Now, the temple tax was not a biblically mandated tax. However, in Jewish history, they tied it into a census tax, which is found in the book of Exodus, and said, we're going to take that tax and apply it to the temple. So they, they made a connection back and said, oh, yes, it's biblically mandated. But it's not a biblically mandated tax, but it did develop into a tax that was expected to be paid by all Jewish males. You were seen to be patriotic if you paid the tax. You were a good Jew if you paid the tax. People would use an expression today about God and country. Well, that's sort of how they looked at this particular tax, that you were being faithful to God and country when you paid it. Now, the fact that this tax is being collected in Capernaum tells us some important things about the timing of this particular event, because typically this tax was collected in Jerusalem. However, and it was collected around the Passover. All Jewish males were supposed to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. But sometimes things happen and you can't get down there, you're sick, you're in bed, whatever it may be, and you can't make your way to Jerusalem, and thus you wouldn't be able to pay your tax. And so what do the nice tax collectors do? They come to you. And so one month before the Passover, they would go out to the cities where, in the villages where the Jews live, scattered throughout the rest of Israel, and they would set up shop, and anybody that wasn't going to go down to Jerusalem could pay the tax there. And so the fact that they are in Capernaum, a Jewish city outside of Jerusalem, a good distance outside of Jerusalem, it clues us into the fact that we are now about one month prior to when Jesus would go to Jerusalem and be arrested and be crucified. And so here's Jesus' crew. They roll into town together. I imagine the scene, as we've seen a lot already in the book of Matthew, a lot of people 
begin to gather around Jesus, begin to press on Jesus as we have seen it again and again. In my mind, I imagine Peter is sort of hanging back. Maybe they took a boat into the town and he's cleaning things up and tying the boat up and all that kind of stuff. And these temple tax collectors, and the tax collectors typically set up right there on the coast. That's why I imagine the scene with Peter. They can't get to Jesus. And so instead, they go up to Peter and they say, how about your teacher? Is he a good Jew or isn't he? He pays the annual tax to support the temple, doesn't he? And they, they, he sort of asks these questions. Now, Jesus, or, excuse me, Peter, very quickly, notice he responds and he says, sure he does. Yes, he pays the tax. He says there, now I don't know if Jesus regularly paid this tax or not. It wasn't a biblically mandated tax, and so I would suspect Jesus said, yeah, I don't play like made-up games that you guys come up with. I'm not paying your tax. He maybe did that. So he, Peter says, yes, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's trying to get Jesus off the hook or something here, and he just kind of gets the pushy tax collector to go away. I don't really know. But the scene provides for us once again a teachable moment. And we've been looking at that as Jesus goes on the way with his disciples. These moments would pop up, and he would address them. He would teach them. He'd explain some things. And so now we have one. Look at verse 25, the rest of it. It says, and when he came into the house, Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? Now, Simon is Peter. It's uh, the name that he was originally known by. And so Jesus asked Peter a question. He says, when a king levies a tax, does he charge his own sons to pay that tax? And the answer is no, he doesn't. He charges his subjects. In America, it's a little bit differently, obvi different, obviously, but in that setting, no, he's not going to charge his own kids. He's going to charge his subjects. Now, Peter immediately knows the answer to Jesus' question, and so he says, well, he charges others. He said, no, he doesn't charge the sons. He charges the subjects. And Jesus says, exactly. Therefore, the sons, and in this case, in Jesus' case, the son, him, is free. Now, Peter had told the tax collectors, yes, his master pays the taxes, but perhaps now he's beginning to think through this, particularly with this question being asked as to whether really he should be paying that. And Jesus confirms perhaps those doubts by pointing out that he, as the son of the king, is not obligated to pay the tax. Okay? So that's the important thing that we come away with those opening verses, that Jesus is not obligated to pay this particular tax. Now, I want to show you a key word, and I think it applies to us. We don't have to deal with temple taxes and things like that, but I think there's a valuable application for us here. Look at this next word in verse 27. It says, however, and this is an important concept for us, and it's one I don't really like. All right, I'm going to tell you that right off the bat, because this, at, off the bat, it asks things of me that I'm not always interested in doing. All right, and it's probably going to be the same with you, because I know your hearts, friends, and you're a lot like me. He says this, however, just because he is not obligated to pay the tax doesn't mean he can't pay the tax. You writing that down? Just because he's not obligated doesn't mean that he can't. Notice what he says after however. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go and pay the tax. And I'll read it, uh, the rest of it. He says, go to the sea. And cast a hook and take the first fish that you come up with. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, that's pretty cool, isn't it? 
The danger is we get caught up in that miracle. Wow, fishing, tax payments coming out of the fish, that's really cool. What a cool story. You know, did you hear the neat story about Jesus catching a fish? And we may get caught up in that miracle, but the miracle is not the point of this. It would be great if every time our quarterly taxes were due, we just went out fishing for the day. That would be pretty awesome. But that's not the point of what Jesus is trying to get to. And we don't want to miss what Jesus is communicating here to Peter, and I think to each of us. What he's communicating is Jesus wasn't obligated to pay the tax, but that didn't mean that he couldn't pay the tax. Because in Jesus' mind, if in not paying the tax he offended others, then he might as well go ahead and pay it to avoid the offense. Now, the connection I'm going to make has nothing to do with taxes. I think you should pay your taxes. I think you should find a great accountant out there that can get you to pay the least amount that you possibly have to pay legally and all that kind of stuff. You find the laws and obey the laws and take advantage of them as they're put out there for you to take advantage of. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I'm not going to make any application of taxes. You should be paying your taxes. I heard a tea party guy over there or something. <laughs> not really sure. But Jesus, in not paying the taxes, risked offending these temple tax collectors. And so we said, you know what? To avoid the offense, just go ahead and pay the tax. I've met a lot of followers of Christ. I've been blessed. I mean, a lot of followers of Christ all over the world. And I met a lot of American followers of Christ in my days, and it's been awesome. But sometimes I come across followers of Christ who seem as if they're not satisfied unless they're offending other people. Standing up, offending them, letting them know, putting them in their place, and then walk away as if I just stood for Jesus or whatever. And somehow they see it as if they're not standing true or walking with integrity unless others that think differently from them or angry at the end of their conversation with them. And I don't think Jesus saw it that way. Jesus wasn't obligated to pay this tax, but it wasn't the end of the world if he did pay the tax. Now, I do believe there's a time to take a stand. I do believe there's a time to take a stand, absolutely. And in taking that stand, you're likely going to offend someone. It seems like the society we live in, we're offended so easily by things that shouldn't be offensive to us, but we're just so easily offended. And likely in taking a stand, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings that you didn't agree with them, but there are things that we need to take stands on. And so let me just make that very clear, but take a stand on. But just make sure of this. Make sure the thing that you are taking a stand for is something that Jesus would take a stand for. I think that's important. You may recall back in chapter 15, there were some religious leaders, they came they confronted the Lord because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands ceremonially the way that the elders of the society told them they had to. And Jesus' response at that time was to rebuke those religious leaders. Now the disciples, when they got alone with Jesus, they said to him, Lord, don't you know that the leaders were offended by what you just said to them? And Jesus' response was something like, well, you know what, they needed to be offended. Because what they were doing was wrong, and so they needed to be offended. There are times where we need to take a stand for righteousness. And that case there, that instance there about ceremonial hand cleaning, that was an instance of righteousness that Jesus needed to take a stand for, whether people are offended or not. And so he did. Many times, however, and perhaps even most times, we're talking about things that are morally indifferent. And when things are morally indifferent, 
those are not times to crusade for your point of view or for your rights or for your preferred way of doing something. Those are times to look to God for his provision. As Jesus did, he sent Peter to go find a fish and it was provided for. In your particular instance, provision will come in a different form. Those times there where you say, you know what, that's fine. My preference is this, your preference is that, and I can give in, I don't care. In those instances, the provision we need from the Lord is his strength. In those instances, it's his mercy for another person. It's his patience for another person. Those are the things we need to look to the Lord for when we feel, I'm not obligated to do this, but I will do this particular thing. The Apostle Paul, he wrote to Timothy, he said, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Pretty straightforward, simple instructions, isn't it? The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome. And I think it's a simple admonition that we would all do very well to pursue. And Jesus does that here. And so he pays this tax, doesn't really bother him, mean much to him. Why offend someone unnecessarily? Here's the money that you're asking for. Hopefully the Lord can put some application to that in your life. Now let's move on to chapter 8. We begin in verse 1. 18, I should say. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We've been following the ministry of the Lord through the book of Matthew, and, and I've pointed out that one of the reasons why Jesus had disciples travel with him is so that when teachable moments came up, he could teach them. And we looked at that just a couple of minutes ago. Here we have now an instance where a teachable moment comes up, but it would be better to postpone it and to deal with it later on rather than getting into it right now. And that's what we have in verses 1 through 6. Look at verse 1. It informs us that the disciples come to the Lord and they inquire of him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it seems like an innocent question. These guys are just sort of racking their brain, thinking about all the Old Testament saints, and you know, just sort of this innocent debate amongst them begins to develop. I think it was Moses, and let me tell you why. And you go and you talk all about Moses and why he was great. No, 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 Moses is cool, but it was Elijah. And let me tell you why it was Elijah. And they go through this whole process, and they're naming Ruth and Esther and Daniel and Samuel, and they're naming all of these people of the Old Testament. Who are the greatest of those? That seems pretty cool, right? You know what? Let's just let Jesus settle it. Who's the greatest, Lord? That's not what they're asking here. And we know that it's not what they're asking as we look at some of the other passages that are found in the New Testament as well. So if you, we look over at the Mark passage and the Luke passage of this interaction, we learn some interesting bits that Matthew has left out, if you will, of the story. I don't think Matthew's trying to protect people. Maybe he is. I don't know. But Mark and Luke, they tell us what's really going on. This is what Luke says. Luke tells us as they were making their way to Capernaum, so as they're going to Capernaum, it says in Luke 9, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So they're not worried about Moses and Elijah and all those other people. They're schmoes or whatever. They're worrying about themselves, which of us is the greatest. That's a big difference, isn't it? This isn't some innocent question about the Old Testament saints. It's about themselves. What they want to know is which one of them 
was the greatest. And they actually argue over it for an extended period of time as they go to Capernaum, make their way this 30-mile journey. I don't know how many of the miles, but they argue it over it as they're making their way to Capernaum. Mark then tells us that Jesus asks them a probing question where Jesus got into the house and he said, and that's why I said the teachable moment was postponed. No, Jesus is overhearing this. He's hearing what these people are talking about. And he says, when we get to that house, we're going to sit down and have a little talk about this. And so he gets into the house and Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? And so I think if we put all that together, the scenario was something like this. They're traveling to Capernaum and they get into a conversation which quickly develops into an argument over which of them is the greatest. Jesus hears it, files it away, and says, we're going to come back to this a little bit later. Then they get to the house, and he says, so tell me what you guys were arguing about on the road. And then, I suspect, initially, we weren't arguing about anything, Lord. We weren't talking about anything. And he gave him that look, like, look, I know it all. I know what you were doing. And then finally, one of them fesses up. And then eventually, one of them says, well, actually, Lord, since we're here, so tell us, which of us is the greatest? Or whatever. I think it kind of goes like that, and that's how you put all of these parts of the story together and so the opportunity for the Jesus to teach on this is when it's a little bit more quieter and they're in that confined space and Jesus begins they begin now and they ask that question and Jesus says who is the greatest here in the kingdom or they come who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven now we have no record of the disciples responding to that question that Jesus asked maybe they realize you know what Based on his face, we probably shouldn't have been arguing about this anyway. You know, we probably missed up. And whoever wasn't really talking about it is probably the greatest uh, here in the kingdom. And so there's kind of this silence, I imagine, that it envelops the room. Nobody wants to answer the question. And so Jesus decides to kind of go a different direction to teach his lesson. And as we see in, cha- in verse 2 and 3, he takes a child. And he puts the child right in the midst of all of them. I'll read it to you. It says, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus liked to do this. It kind of raised the suspense level as, you know, he said, hold on, everyone. No, it's quiet in here. Can you get a little kid? And then the kid comes in and everyone's attention is on the little kid. I wonder what's going on here. And I wonder if the disciples, what's Jesus doing? Surely this kid is not the greatest in the kingdom. This kid hasn't done anything for the Lord. We're the ones traveling all over the place with him. And so he puts this kid right there in the midst. And then imagine their surprise when Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying this to them. You want to be greatest in the kingdom? Well, then you better change your thinking because you're at risk of not even getting into the kingdom. That's what he's saying to them here. That's a big deal, isn't it? Jeez, I thought I was going to be number one in the kingdom, and now I may not even get in to the kingdom, Lord. It seems to me, I think it seems to all of us, obviously, that the disciples had completely forgotten what Jesus was talking about when he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. It seems they had completely forgotten all of that, that that's what his uh, messianic kingdom entailed. That's what was coming down the pike for him. And instead, it seems they fixed their mind again on that he's going to have a throne somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, they knew, they were certain that it was obvious to them he was going to be the king on that throne. But what they're jockeying for is who's going to be the vice king. I want to be the vice king. Not this guy. Look at this guy. He can't be the vice king. But I could be the vice king, Lord. And they get into this debate, it seems, about it. Who's number two in the kingdom? 
Now, a good question is, why do they want to be the vice king anyway? That's not even a real term. But why do they want to be number two in the kingdom anyway? If it's because, hey, I have a lot of great ideas, and I think I can implement those ideas, and we can make a real change and a real impact, well, that's a reasonable reason. If, on the other hand, it's something like, well, I want to be the top dog. I want everybody to do what I tell them to do. I want people to come and genuflect to me, or at least everybody but Jesus, but I want to be that number two guy. If that is it, then they're, th- and that's what it is, their thinking is very, very far from Jesus's thinking. They don't have the mind of Christ. And Paul would tell us that we are to have the mind of Christ. Too bad Paul didn't re- write that earlier for these disciples to read, but he wrote it early enough for you and I to read, that we would have the mind of Christ. And so in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, great words. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how far off their thinking was in arguing who was the greatest among themselves and actually even asking the question of which of them was the greatest? Jesus says if you want to become great in the kingdom, you need to become like a child, childlike, not childish, but childlike. And there's a big difference between the two. Jesus says that the greatest of the disciples are those that become like children. And he amplifies it in verse 4. He adds this, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children, a child, are typically, children are typically marked by humility. Unless, of course, we've kind of ruined them, making them think the whole world revolves around them. Typically, children are marked by humility. So when a child walks into Thanksgiving dinner, that child fully expects he's going to be in another room at a card table, and he's not upset when he's placed at that other room at the card table. He's just happy to be there in the house to get food. They're just happy to be there. And you don't hear children declaring things like, don't you know who I am? Yes, I do. Go sit over there. You're a child, whatever it may be. Children don't jockey to be the number one person in the organization because children aren't even aware that there is an organization. Children are just naturally marked by humility, and they're just happy for the opportunity and consider any opportunity to be a tremendous privilege. And the disciples would do well to begin thinking that way as well. We would do well to think that way. And since he's speaking of children, notice in verse 5, Jesus continues. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I think we see two important points here. First, since Jesus receives with joy those that are humble then we also should receive those with joy, those who are humble. In fact, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so the the high place of this humility, stop jockeying for position. Stop being nice to people because of what they can offer you in return, which a lot of people do. 
Stop ignoring the insignificant and fawning all over those that you perceive to be important. When you live a life of humility, not pretending to be humble, but a life that is truly marked by humility, then you're beginning to discover what greatness looks like, is Jesus' first point. Now, his second point is a strong warning against anyone that would cause a little one to sin. Notice he says it would be better for him to have a great millstone, a big rock, fastened around his neck, and for him to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, I'm not afraid to die. I do have some concerns as to how I might die. But as far as dying, I'm not concerned about that. Being torn limb from limb by a wild animal, not a good way to go, and not one that I would desire to go. And neither is drowning. I can't think of many other things that would be worse than that, than drowning and not being able to get out of that water. And Jesus says here that the punishment for leading a child astray would be even worse than drowning. That's a very, very strong statement that the Lord is making here. And it's certainly a warning to anyone that would lead a child, or really that would lead anyone away or astray into sin. It's a wicked thing to sin. And sin separates us from God. But the scripture seems to make very clear it's a far greater evil when you lead others into sin. And, you know, as I consider that and think about that, I think, you know, how our entertainment system should take notice of these words. Because how much of the American entertainment system leads people into sin? I think some of our educational systems should take notice. There's a reverend of a fellowship, I, I don't know where, uh, she, she serves, but she's an assistant pastor of a congregation, and she just wrote a book that is entitled Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity, Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. And she goes on and she writes how this idea of chastity for unmarried believers is not a biblical idea, and the reality is as long as it's mutually pleasurable for both parties and affirming of both parties, then it's acceptable to the Lord. It's the complete opposite of what the scripture teaches. And so there are young Christians that'll pick up this book and they have strong desires toward that and they'll be like, great, I finally found something that satisfies my urges and my needs and they'll get into that and the scripture says that the fornicator will not inherit the kingdom of God. There'll be great judgment for someone who writes things like that and leads people astray. Strong words from the Lord. Jesus continues in verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hellfire. Sin is serious. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Sin is serious. And to demonstrate that it is so serious, Jesus is purposefully using hyperbole, but he's purposefully going to the extreme when he describes how serious sin in, uh, is. And in verse 8, when he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better, he says, for you to enter eternal life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And then he gives the other example about your eyes. He says, tear it out if necessary. Better be blind than to go to the eternal fire. If your hand or your foot, foot causes you to sin, he says, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter life crippled. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to be blind. He's purposefully speaking in extreme language here to make the point because it's that important that sin is that serious. Now, I would certainly hope that all of us here realize that Jesus has no intention that any of us cut off our hands or cut off our feet or pluck out our eyes. That's not the point of what he's saying. His point is to make the disciples uh, make the point that the disciple of Christ should do everything within their power to deal with sin in their lives. And so if you got a little kleptomaniac problem, then you need to deal with it. Cut off your hands so that you can't wander over and take other people's stuff. If you've got a wandering eye that is continually drawn to take in those things that it should not be beholding, then he says pluck it out to prevent it from wandering off and taking in those things that it shouldn't be taking in. Sin is serious and it needs to be treated as such. Now I know that Jesus isn't literally talking about us cutting off our hands, plucking out our eyes because of this reality. Even if you did cut off your right hand to keep you from stealing, well then your left hand would start wandering to try and steal things. And even if you did pluck out your eye to keep it from gazing on those things that it shouldn't be, even if you plucked out both of your eyes, your mind's eye would take over. And it would begin to th think about all those things that you used to take a look at. And so the point is this. It's not a hand problem. It's not an eye problem. It's not a foot problem. It's a heart problem. That's the problem. My heart wants to sin, not my hand. My heart wants to sin, not my eyeball. And so we need to deal with our heart. And you probably heard that before. I certainly hope you've heard that before if you've been coming here. And so perhaps you've been asking, you know, I hear what you're saying. How do I do that? It would be easier just to cut off my hand, to cut out, pluck out my eye, because then I wouldn't have to think about anything anymore. I just couldn't do it. But we still have our eyes. We still have our hands, still have our feet. So how do we deal with our heart problem? Well, we do deal with it this way. We come to the Lord first, I would suggest, in prayer. And we say once and for all this truth. We say, Lord, I'm done with this. I don't want to play with it anymore. I don't want to dabble with it. I don't want to mess around with it. I want nothing to do with it. That, I believe, is the first step. When you kind of, in prayer, you get right with the Lord and say, this is what I'm talking about, Lord. I'm done with it. And you kind of make that determination. I think the important and important second step, perhaps not in this order, but I think an important second step then is after you've had that time with the Lord and you bore your heart with him and you dealt with it in your heart, I think the second step is to bring other people into the process. Oh, I don't want to bring other people into the process well, then you're probably not going to be successful. But when you bring other people into the process, you bring a trusted brother or sister in the faith who you know has also dealt with these things and deals with this things, these things. You bring a cherished mentor into the process and you say, look, I went before the Lord and I gave it to him. And you bring that brother or that sister into the process. Now you have brought someone that will help keep you accountable the next time that you find yourself being weak. And then I would suggest to you the third step is, if need be, is to eliminate <clears throat> the opportunity. So if you have a problem with drinking and you've gotten right with the Lord and you said, you know what, I'm done with it. I keep going back to it. It always gets me into trouble and I'm not doing it anymore. 
and you brought somebody else into that process, I would suggest to you that the third step would be to eliminate the opportunity. If you have a problem with drinking, get it out of your house and stop going to the bar. If you've fallen into the sin of pornography by viewing that on your internet, then get it out of your house. Eliminate that opportunity. You remember that scene from the movie Fireproof? If you're a Christian here, you had to watch Fireproof. We all did. All right, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, it's a great movie out there. But there's a scene in the movie, the lead character, the movie develops, he had a sin problem of viewing pornography on the internet. And this guy tried a bunch of things, but every time he would go on there to, you know, do his regular computer stuff, pop-ups would come up on his screen and kept enticing him back into this pornography. And finally, though he had had that time where he went before the Lord, he had invited other people into the process, this time finally, in exasperation, he ripped the computer out of the wall. Now in those days, computers sat on your desk and they were plugged into a wall. And so he rips the computer out of the wall and he goes out on his back porch and he takes a bat and he begins to destroy the computer. Now you hear that and you're like, well, that's extreme. Don't you think cutting a hand off is extreme? Cutting a foot off is extreme. Plucking out your eyes is extreme. There are times where the extreme needs to be done so that you can have success in the area. Because I'm quite certain later that evening, if the urge came, that computer is not going to work. That's in the backyard in the garbage can. It's not going to work. And there's no opportunity to go to that sin. Does that make sense, what I'm suggesting? And so there are times where we need to do something that is extreme so that we can have victory in that particular area. And then maybe down the line, 10 years later, when you've had that victory, you can get a computer back in your house. But take the extreme step because sin is serious and it needs to be dealt with as such. Sometimes extreme measures are required if nothing else is working. Now we move on to the final section this morning. It starts in verse 10. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, bless you, should perish. Now, you may notice we have an instance here again where we have a missing verse, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11. And so in many of your versions there, if you take a look, you begin reading verse 10 and then it moves right into verse 12. If you weren't with us last week, we had a situation last week with the same thing where there was a verse that was missing. And I I took some time to explain how different manuscripts that we rely on and some manuscripts do and don't. And typically what you'll find at the bottom of your Bibles, it'll say verse 11, some manuscripts include this uh, and whatever it may be. If you weren't here, we took about five, 10 minutes to explain it. So you can listen to last week's message. But once again, we have here one of those verses that appears in some manuscripts and it doesn't. I think if you have the King James, you'll see verse 11 or a version that is based on the King James or those manuscripts. If you have an ESV, it won't be there. Matthew 18, 11, according to some versions, says this, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. That's what Matthew 18, 11 says. This is what Luke 19, 10 says. And Luke 19, 10 is found in all of our versions. And it says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
almost identical, right, between the two. So for our purposes today, I'm going to assume that Matthew 18.11 is in the text because it's an idea that is already taught throughout the scripture anyway, since it's pretty much exactly the same. And so starting in verse 18, Jesus is using this picture of a child. He says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The Father appreciates and cares for those that are perceived to be small in another person's judgment. And he even makes mention here of their angels seeing always, uh, their angels always seeing the face of God. Now, some people think that's a reference to the idea of guardian angels, that every child has an angel, their angels are always seeing the face of God. And that may be the case. The Bible doesn't really teach the idea clearly of guardian angels. And so, you know, we're not going to build a camp on the idea here. But some people point to that verse as it. But I, I think the point is more so than trying to teach us that there's guardian angels. I think the point is more so that God cares more, God cares so much for those that are perceived to be small in other people's eyes, that their angels have access to him to bring, if you will, that he commissions them to their service. That's how much he thinks of those that are perceived to be small in other people's eyes, that their angels even have access to him and commission are commissioned to their service. If God thinks that highly of them, then shouldn't you? Yeah, you know, that was an easy one. Jesus continues, verse 11, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. And then he presents this hypothetical. He asks them a question in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now you and I, we're not shepherds. Anybody a shepherd here? We don't have any shepherds? We were in uh, Nepal and we were teaching and the, the idea of shepherds came, came up and one of the guys that was teaching said, do we have any shepherds here? And like 19 hands went up, you know, they were all shepherds in the room or whatever. So I, I didn't suspect any of us would be shepherds here. And so that question we might have a little trouble with because we're not shepherds. But, you know, you have this scenario, hey, if one of the sheep goes away, isn't the shepherd going to go and leave? If we were a shepherd, we would all answer very quickly, absolutely, we would go and find the one that is lost. Now, you and I, I think we might raise arguments as to why it's best not to go and find that lost one. We would come up with things like this. Look, if I go after that one, some of these others here might wander away, and I may lose even more. And so I'm sorry, buddy, I can't come and get you and can't find you. You're on your own. That seems like a relatively reasonable argument. Some of us might have a bad attitude, and we might say, well, you know what? The darn thing shouldn't have wandered off anyway. And so let him face his consequences. Some of us might say, if he wants to go, let him go. Let him feel a little bit of pain and learn a lesson or two. And some of you here that are thinking that way, you have a bad attitude, and you should deal with that. I'm just kidding. But we might come up with all sorts of reasons as to why not to leave these to go after that one. But the shepherd would never stay put in the very same way that our good shepherd did not stay put. Amen? Again, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek out and to save those that were lost. If the Lord were a little more like you and I, there likely never would have been an incarnation. Our God coming in the flesh to give his life on our behalf. But we praise the Lord that he's not like us. That's an understatement, isn't it? We praise him. His love compels him to come. His love, as we looked at that Philippians passage, compelled him to look not to his own interest, 
but also to the interest of others. His love compelled him to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross because that is what was going to t- it was going to take to rescue us from death and eternal damnation. And that's why we read in the Matthew passage, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There is great rejoicing in heaven when a person turns to the Lord in faith. John chapter 3, the Bible says this, that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I think verse 18 is an important verse. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Notice, but whoever does believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Son of Man went to seek and to save those that were already condemned. And that is anyone that doesn't believe on his name. If that describes you and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that very simply today. And I would advise you to do that. For those of us that are in Christ, we rejoice in the fact, not that in our own goodness we came to him, but that in his goodness he came to seek us out and to find us. And the reality of that, the truth of that, should melt your heart and leave you with what? To go back to the beginning of our passage, leave you in a place of humility at what he did for you and how he loves you. It's not about being great in the kingdom of of God. And and if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, the only way to be great in the kingdom of God is to be a person of humility. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you for coming and dying for us, seeking us out. Lord, I imagine everyone here has a story at least everyone here that's a believer, similar to mine, where I wasn't looking for you at all, and then all of a sudden, you began to enter into my life, and you began to open up my heart and prepare it to receive. Lord, you revealed my need for you, and then you made it abundantly clear that you alone are that need. And Father, uh, for any of us that are here, that have yet to realize that in your grace and mercy, would you do that even this morning, Lord? Would you open up their hearts? Father, I pray for uh, our young people here that have grown up, Lord, in the faith and indeed perhaps have uh, confessed you as their Savior. They recognize the price that was paid on the cross. And yet perhaps in their hearts there's this sense of or an absence of the wonder of just what they were saved from. And how precious the gift of salvation is. Lord, again, that is a gift that comes from you. And I pray that you would impart that into the hearts of our young people and everyone in this room. Fill us with a wonder. And Lord, we will forever be grateful for the work that you've done. Thank you for this passage today. We ask uh, your blessing on us as we continue to fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.